welcome to another episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you this week from the gargantuan punch bowl green on the sixth hole at Black Creek Club in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and this is short game session number 12. Happy Vanity Handicapper Sandbagger Day. So we begin this transition from winter to spring, hopefully, and we're moving past the golf offseason in most places. I wanted to riff on a few things. I haven't done one of these monologue episodes in a while, so nice way to get caught up and clear the deck heading into the new year. Um, first, for those of us in the Ohio and Cumberland River Valleys, much like the rest of the interior of the United States, we were recently waylaid by consecutive ice and snowstorms, which basically reduced us here in central Kentucky to the basest lower foundations of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Not only was there no golf or golf practice to be enjoyed, it was basically a a weather-induced lockdown for a few days. Again, a fitting end to planning and daydreaming season and the last 12 months writ large. Uh, But we have survived and thrived, moving on from daydreaming and trip planning to active handicap manipulation season. That's right. For those of us here in Kentucky, as well as those in, let me see if I can get this right, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Missouri, Oregon, Washington, and West by God, Virginia. And this week marks opening day for sandbaggers and vanity handicappers alike. What is a sandbagger, you ask? What is a vanity handicap? I've been accused of both, but I've only truly been one of those in my lifetime. Um, I was never really talented enough to sandbag. Every once in a while, I'll play some a stretch or two of bad and ugly golf and my handicap index will rise. But uh, most when I started the first couple of years keeping a handicap, I was an insufferable vanity handicap index. Um, meaning maybe I didn't record all of the shots that I took to get around the course in 18 holes. Maybe penalty strokes were forgotten. Uh, anyway, it was a way to... M- document myself as a better golfer than I really was. I look back on those times and can only shake my head at how dumb that really was. And I think I started down that path when I realized literally no one else on earth cared how good a golfer I was or what my scores or my handicap index was. Uh, Sandbagger is the opposite. Sandbagger is um, what you might in other respects refer to as a hustler. Somebody who is much better than they say or present. Um, And in golf, you can inflate your index to make it look like you're a much worse golfer than you actually are, which can, in net competitions and games and formal competitions at clubs, can uh, help you earn some money. Uh, But much like the proverbial pool hustler uh, who maybe has his hand broken out in the parking lot, Someone caught sandbagging uh, who has won a fair bit of money. Um, one, they're going to meet a bad end. And two, they're going to be blacklisted, kind of go in the book as someone not to be trusted. Which in golf, which is nominally a game of honor, being labeled a cheater in any respect, even uh, something like sandbagging, that's, that's not a label, that's not a scarlet letter you want to wear around. What cured my vanity handicap? Was it dedicated prayer and meditation, intervention by friends and family? No. No, it was much simpler than that. It was losing. 
Losing saved my golfing soul. The first time I entered the Picadome Men's League, probably six, seven years ago, entering those league competitions, and to a lesser extent to Kentucky Am Series events through the Kentucky Golf Association, losing so badly, uh, not being able to score even remotely close to what my index said on any given course, as a serious golfer, there may be no more consistently demoralizing feeling than not playing to your abilities, or in, in my case, supposed abilities in a competition. That feeling of being exposed as a fraud, quote-unquote, is so strong. It's, it's palpable and real. Throwing away entry fees in tournaments that I had no chance of finishing in the money is how I got cured. I started counting every single stroke, every penalty stroke, and I went on to invest in golf lessons to actually get better instead of pretending to get better or being better on paper. Nowadays, probably a given the no solo round posting requirement from the, the powers that be, the USGA and the RNA, probably a small majority of my recorded scores are from formal competitions or golf trips, where I'm obviously not alone on a golf trip. Um, that's when I get to play with other people other people keeping score anyway so that's how i got cured but march 1st uh, opens a lot of seasons a lot of golf associations that's when people can start recording scores formally so if you are so inclined to get out play take a buddy meet a stranger record a score and uh, so when i say it's handicap manipulation day it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek it's a joke it happens. There are notorious golfers of both stripes inflating and deflating at every golf club, at every country club. So now that they can do their thing, it's a big day for those guys. Uh, handicaps are important for those of us in the NetLife Championship, uh, but not so much for shot-by-shot shot giving of strokes within a, a round or a match. Kind of what I've come to the realization of is that it's a a great tool for sorting golfers of comparable skills. What I discovered, what I discovered last year in our uh, Play Golf Lexington Amateur League, in those tournaments, is that I really enjoyed playing in tournaments where it was the tournament was flighted so that groups of golfers of similar handicap indexes, similar skill sets, were grouped together, and then everybody just played a raw score a gross score within the flight um, i think maybe there were some tournaments where there was a gross and net element to it but i know for the the championship events for the playoffs it was just flighted uh no net scores so if you had a, if you were the best golfer that day within your flight you won you didn't have to worry about um, any any by how many strokes you were getting or how many strokes your competitors were getting speaking of the fall season I had a great finish to the competitive season last year. I was able to win my flight, the C flight. Everyone knows that's where all the cool players play. Of the the Play Golf Lexington uh, Amateur Tournament Series. The end of the year tournament um, was styled like the PGA Tour Championship, where it was a net start. This is the first year they'd, they'd done this. First year they'd done it like this. And it ended up being pretty cool, if you ask me. Uh, because I won, uh, where your season-long point total 
figured out how many strokes back of the overall point leader you started. So, for instance, in my flight, I started the first day. It was a two-day tournament. I started the first day two strokes back. I started the second day four strokes back of the leader um, and had some ground to make up. Now, for me, that was fine because the I want to say it was October. might have been early November when we did this. And on the first day, it was just a beautiful, picturesque fall morning, bright sunshine, relatively warm day. Um, played at Gabriel Jr. Golf Course at Picadome, where I played okay, but the leader played better, and I gave a couple of strokes. But somehow I was able to weasel my way into the final group with that score for day two. And that's where I felt like life had been conspiring to bring me to that moment because it, as nice as the day was on Saturday, that's how poor the weather and the day was that Sunday the next day. It was cold. It was rainy. The wind was blowing. Um, so all of my preparations for the Scotland trip a couple of years ago, uh, all my investment in quality rain gear, my inability not to golf in poor cold weather it all came together and it all culminated i hit a relatively good tee shot on the first tee and kind of jokingly celebrated that it was going to be a good day um, with the, the bad weather and turns out i was right because i was able to eke out a one-shot victory uh, with a bogey on the 18th hole um and what the only anecdote I'll I'll bore you with is on the 14th hole I made a triple I made an eight uh, and I hit had to hit an uphill six footer to save that eight I'd hit into a little greenside bunker bladed it into lost ball territory so yes everyone's favorite shot I had to drop back in the bunker uh, hit that shot again was able to two putt uh, to save triple boy that feels better than a quad. And I was just mad enough. The next hole is a par three where kind of a cape look to it where the, the most of the green on a direct line from the tee is out over a pond um, and kind of bleeds towards that pond. Into the two-club wind, um, I was just mad enough that I decided if I've got any chance at this, I've got to go right at it. The leaders, uh, the first two guys that teed off bailed out way right into safety. The wind kind of ate them up. Um and I just decided I was going to do it. And I swung as hard as I've swung probably all of in 2020 and was pin high, 12 feet left for an easy two putt. And I was back in the game. Now, the, what I learned from this, I never looked at the score. We had electronic scoring going on and I never looked at where we stood. I just wanted to have fun and play aggressive. Remember to be aggressive. Little did I know that I had a two stroke lead on 18 and I just chopped it up. Big slice drive, kind of duffed the second one. Anyway, it found my way up to the green and hit a 12-footer kind of casually uh, and ended up with a one-shot victory. So all because I was too stupid to actually look at the score on the 18th tee box. Let that be a lesson, kids. Know where you stand. Maybe not all day, but at least when it counts. Um, speaking of bad weather and rainy weather, as the weather put the clamps on our local golf scene here, it did not deter me from one of my favorite things, which is taking a golf trip. Uh, but the, as the circumstances conspired, what ended up being one of the best golf trips that I've been on uh, almost didn't happen. 
first, uh, before I get into the details of that, I want to acknowledge that much of the way that people are either drivers or passengers, people are also either golf trip captains or golf trip passengers and participants, and it's hard to go between the two. My hope is to maybe eventually develop a golf trip committee within our golf trips, and I think I'm mostly there. I'm pretty sure I could email a handful of scorecards to Matt and Fred or some of the other longtime members of my big golf trip. They could pretty much put together a foolproof, entertaining golf trip with good side games that everybody would enjoy. I wouldn't even have to be there. What I did not realize until very recently is that relinquishing control... And that's the real key, the control of the decision-making, of steering the decisions. Relinquishing that to whomever, to another person, to a higher power, to the golf gods themselves. That is a huge ask when you're used to being in control. Of course, it's always fun to be invited on these things and invited on golf trips, but I was not fully cognizant of my own personal shortcomings in this respect with someone else determining my itinerary, so to speak, until this golf trip opportunity came up. So, yes, I still have a lot of work to do. Uh, thank you for listening to my testimony. For this particular trip, I'll give you the short version. Uh, we'll come back to some of these details later, maybe in subsequent episodes. But a friend of mine had booked uh, two days of the Down with Brown experience at Sweeten's Cove. I've not yet been to Sweeten's Cove, or I should say I haven't played it. Um, and so these were two all-day passes on consecutive days uh, for eight of us. And it was, unlike other golf trips, it was his deal. So that was, uh, it was a very reasonable price. It was going to be fun. Uh, what a way to shake off the rust and get 2021 started. As it turns out, his friends and golfing buddies... How do I put this gently? Have commitment issues. And I find that's true of a lot of my college buddies and college friends, at least the, the non-golf addict ones. Um, so he, he wasn't getting a good response rate and people committing to it. Truth be told, it's February. That even in the Chattanooga area, there's the likelihood that it may be cold. And winter golf just isn't everybody's cup of tea. So uh, with about a month to go or a few weeks to go, I wanted to try to, I wanted to go on the trip, so he let me become, step in and be travel agent, recruiting a, a new crew, some of our mutual friends, some people from outside his orbit um, that I just was the, the centerpiece of that weird Venn diagram, but that's not totally unusual for me. So it was people that I enjoy playing golf with, people whose company I'd, I'd enjoy uh, on and off the golf course. So we, the trip is booked, the cabin is rented and paid for, and then the polar vortex happens. Uh, the aforementioned thing that put us under ice and snow. Tuesday of the week of our trip, I see on Instagram that Sweetens Cove is pulling the plug. They're pulling out tarps to cover their greens and are canceling the rest of the week. My heart sank. It wasn't completely unforeseeable. Uh, we had been watching weather reports and watching the expected conditions to deteriorate almost in real time as they change the forecast. That's how obsessive it got there uh, the week of. But I'd held out hope for a reprieve from the snow and ice, and we weren't granted one. So I informed the guys 
of even before we got a formal email from from the golf club that hey it looks like uh, this is a wash but I'm going to try um, try to find something else out uh, try to see if there's something in the area that we might be able to play and that's when something remarkable happened that's when maybe the brotherhood of the bogey kicked in and some really incredible things happened due to the kindness of strangers who happened to be in golf. In a period of about 20 minutes from the time I sent a group message saying it's official, they're shutting down Sweetens Cove, we're out, um, but we've still got the cabin paid for no outside the refund window, so that's fun. Um, so I went from complete despair to complete excitement. I messaged... Um, some people, when I when I saw what was going on on the social media feeds, I messaged uh, some Twitter friends that are connected to the, the golf course and said, you know, maybe next year. It was a, a good idea. Um, we knew the risk of February when we took it. Um, you know, hope you guys miss the worst of it, and we'll, we'll try again next year. And he said, well, and I, I mentioned that we still had the cabin rental, so I'm triangulating, seeing how far south things might still be open that we could play and still use the, the kind of the lodging rental that's right there in the tri-state area where Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee meet. And said, hold on, I'll, let me make a call, see if I can get you on uh, a club I'd never heard of. Turned out to be Black Creek. I said, oh, surely if you guys are closed, they're closed. But thank you for even mentioning it. Five minutes later, he says, you've got tea times at 11 o'clock on Friday and Saturday at the Black Creek Club. Uh, friend, I'm not sure if this individual is a member there or just knows Mr. Stein, the, the founder and owner of Black Creek there in Chattanooga. And so just like that, um, I had gone from being a thief of joy to a purveyor of joy anew. And all just, again, from not from having connections, not from working and pulling a miracle, just literally from the kindness of strangers that uh, wanted to do right by us and pass it on. So they have created a reservoir of goodwill that I don't think I can repay. My only hope there is to somehow figure out a way to pass it and, and pay it forward. We ended up having um, five of us went down on Friday. So we'd gone from a couple of guys canceled. Um, some of them were, it was questionable whether they would have even been able to arrange transportation given the state of the roads and the weather. Um, but we did two days on this club. It's a Brian Silva designed course filled with modern interpretations of classic template holes and golden age features. It was really cool. Our weekend was saved. Um, we were allowed to thrive and really make some of my favorite golf memories. Uh, if for no other reason than uh, strangers were nice to us and wanted us to, to have a good time. So, um, you might think that I'm being a little bit overly dramatic about that point. But, again, these are people that have not met. These are not friends that owed me a favor. Uh, these were just people that understand uh, an addiction to golf, understand its place in people's lives that love the game, and went out of their way uh, to make the day of, of five and eventually six strangers. Uh, then had a blast. Friday, we played that day. It was cold. It was probably in the 30s all day with little breeze. So the course was empty. There were maybe two or three 
uh, groups that we played through. They let us go out as a fivesome walking, which was great. So we got to enjoy every everybody got to enjoy each other's company all day and experience the course uh, newly together. So that's one of my favorite golf days of of recent memory. There will be more tales from that trip and maybe some discussion about the course itself in subsequent episodes. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Next item, and this is a timeless concept that is good to, uh, I guess, rethink about or or revisit now that the 2021 season is upon us. Aim small, miss small. It's incredible how this simple advice uh, permeates a lot of different parts of my golf game and how useful it is and how easily it is forgotten. Um... I've basically been putting like poo ever since that club championship back in the fall. On a a trip down to the Sand Hills in December, I caught the yips like I could not believe. I don't know the last time I'd had that experience, just being completely lost with a putter in the hand. On that trip, on the, the round at Southern Pines, it got so bad that the guys had to kind of turn away. They couldn't watch me putt. It was so bad. It was so painful. Um, with them just knowing that I was going to miss it. Um, And I figured something out. It took a lot of anguish and a lot of really bad practice before I had an epiphany uh, a week or two ago in the basement on the putting mat with my little guy, with my three-year-old, putting right along with me. And I realized that I wasn't looking at the ball while I was putting. Let that sink in. That's how crazy and convoluted a golfer's mind can get. I was trying to make putts without looking at the ball. What I was doing was watching the putter go back and come through. And I I guess adjusting or trying to correct things mid-stroke. That's an awful, awful way to putt. Um, So I had to think back. Once I realized I was doing it, the solution was really easy. Uh, Stare at the back of the ball and don't ever move my eyes. Uh, once I you know, looked at my line and gotten all set and, and gotten ready, uh, I had to practice, and it sounds silly, but I had to practice, dedicated practice time to staring at the back of the ball. Not the middle of the golf ball, not the front, not the top, the very back of the golf ball. Um, and all of a sudden, magically, putts started falling, putts started being closer to the hole, there was no deceleration, um, and it it transferred a little bit to the, the golf trip to Chattanooga, those being different greens. Um, some of the, There was some inconsistent effort on my part, but that, um, that particular problem of leaving most putts woefully short or uh, decelerating or even, God forbid, bouncing the putter into the ball. Yeah, the old drop kick. Um, that was corrected. I was able to get that good crisp contact that I wanted. Um, so correcting that problem filled me with a sense of hope and optimism heading into the new season. Next thing I want to mention is something a little different. On my trip to Chattanooga, one of the guys in our group, most of the guys I play with on a regular basis are roughly about my skill level. Some of them may be half a dozen strokes better than me on a given day. That's not unusual. Um, 
they may be they may have handicaps that travel whereas mine i may blow up to a, a bogey golfer on a course i haven't played before which is an unfortunate experience i want to try to solve in 2021 but i digress um but one of the guys in our group is a legitimate plus handicap on this this trip and watching being able to play with him and watch him play 18 holes was really a treat. I'd played with him before in a, a Kentucky golf association event. Um, but I don't think it struck me how much further he hit the ball than I did. And the way, why that was interesting was after the two days, after we had uh, consumed these wonderful 18 template holes over the course of two rounds, we kind of got into discussion. He put the question to me, you know, why, why do you care about golf architecture? What does that do? Does it, you know, why is that important? And, you know, I, I went to kind of my stock stump speech about it, that I care about the architecture because it may save me some strokes in the course of a round. If I know what the design of a hole is, then I may not be able to play it the way that it was intended. Um, I, I may not have control of my golf ball to the extent that the architect is really trying to test. But what I will know is usually I can figure out exactly where not to hit it, like where avoid the trouble, limit my risk. That gives me a fighting chance to put up a score on a hole. My friend Andrew hits the ball so far and so high. Uh, admittedly, he's a little younger man than me. Uh, so I don't have to feel that awful about how much further he hits it than me. But he hits it so far and so high, more of a project, a trajectory that one would expect out of a professional golfer, um, that largely the architecture was irrelevant to him. I mean, he's got a natural talent, and he works hard. He, he trains for strength. He practices golf. He practices all the aspects of his game. It's really fun to watch him play. Um so for him, it is a, and he knows how far he hits all of his clubs with pretty good precision. So for him, it is a, a different math game. He is not putting his ball on the ground um, and hope and using the ground necessarily the way that I would. Being a shorter hitter, being someone that is, um, you know, for the same distance shot, my ball is not going to be coming in as high with as short of a club as he has. So it, it was interesting watching him kind of dissect and digest a, a golf course, uh, playing shots that I would never really conceive to play because I'm not capable of them. Whereas I think for him, uh, there's a simplicity in just playing a single type of shot because if he, uh, even though he has the ability to play more shots than I would, you know, to go high, to go low, to turn the ball right to left, left to right. Um, it could almost be paralysis by analysis for him, uh, especially if he was uh, trying to dissect what a whole, the architecture of a whole dictates kind of on the fly. It, what I gathered was that it's just easier for him to pick a number, hit it to that number. And when you're at that level of player, um, that's, I guess, the easy way to play. But it kind of put in context this roll the ball back debate, all these 
uh, distance debates, you know, save the classic courses and the, the classic architecture kind of debates that are going around right now. Because I, I don't know that there was anybody else kind of in my universe that sort of made the course architecture irrelevant before my own eyes. I've been to a pro tournament, but, you know, those guys play it so far back. They're, uh, you know, the PGA Championship of Valhalla is well past 7,000 yards, and that's probably not one of the longer courses on tour. Um, you know, I know where the, the back tees are at Harbor Town, and that is notoriously one of the shortest, if not the shortest course um, on the regular PGA Tour schedule. So seeing someone that kind of plays that type of golf game and the way that the architecture uh, both does and doesn't matter to him, uh, it was interesting. It was enlightening. It made me, made me kind of rethink the fervor in which I entertain that roll the ball back or roll the equipment back debate inside my own head. You know, the, I think where I'm, I'm coming to is just that someone like him, meaning someone that plays the professional type game, you know, all carry high, hits a high ball, lands it soft, and has control of it laterally. Um, we just play a different game. And it may be okay that we play different golf courses. Um, so I don't know. It, it was just an eye-opening experience. It was a fun experience. He challenged me on kind of why I think the way I, I do, and I appreciate that. So uh, definitely thoughts to be continued, but um, it was... It was nice. Uh, last of kind of my nine points. I know it was February, uh, and it was a, a trip designed to knock the rust off, but I played poorly enough on that golf trip score-wise that I headed to the range for one session to try to see if I could figure out what I was doing, if it was just fatigue maybe or uh, nerves or enthusiasm that, that set my game astray. Nope, couldn't find it, so... Uh, very quickly scheduled a lesson after hitting, you know, one bucket of balls. That's growth for me. I don't know if I'm getting more impatient or if I'm getting smarter. Um, but that's a change because whereas in years past, I would have just pounded ball after ball on the range trying to quote unquote, figure it out. You know, find that the secret is buried in the dirt allegedly. Well, that may be true, but I decided to make my problems into my pros problems because he's much more efficient at solving them than I am. Um, and after a lesson, relatively simple fix. So again, now I, I can, I've got enough optimism to last at least a couple of weeks or until my next blowed up uh, round of golf. So if you've never had golf lessons, I cannot recommend them strongly enough, uh, both for the physical and mental benefits. Uh, coming up soon, the, uh, the Lexington League, uh, where I will defend my sea flight title hoping for an earned promotion to the B flight, by the way, and the Kentucky uh, Golf Association AM Series, which I opted out of in 2020 because of of COVID and kids being home, and it was all just too much. Those are opening up for registration for those folks here in the central Kentucky area, um, which I guess is kind of like spring training for planning season because you can look at the whole calendar and kind of plan out your year. So if that's something you're interested in, by all means, hop online and start checking out those schedules. Uh, the rumor is this week that it's going to be sunny enough that I may even be able to get out for nine holes while the, the kids are in school this week. Who knows? 
kind of as a, a bonus hole, a 10th hole on this short game session, you know, a, a recent, going back to kind of what I was talking about there with Andrew and, and golf course architecture, a recent recurring theme on this podcast, especially on my public golf talks uh, on those segments, and also with uh, Scott Lafine, has been whether golf can grow smaller, meaning can the can the business of golf survive if golf courses stop growing longer, but instead either stay stagnant within their existing footprints or, uh, and cover your kids' ears, grow smaller. It hits at the intersection of a lot of interests, a lot of competing interests, golf equipment companies, golf designers and builders, uh, their associated industries, parks and rec departments, golf course operators, and of course the people, the players that, that love the game. The idea of building or renovating courses that aren't chasing maybe the dream of hosting a, a professional event or even a high-level amateur event, this isn't new. Um, there's been a division of those. There's some, been clubs that have been very happy in their own skin at shorter yardages. Uh, there have been, I know Tom Doak and Renaissance Golf Design are one that have had a philosophy specifically um, of not chasing a lot of PGA Tour designs. I think his recent effort of Memorial Park in Houston may be his first uh, course that is going to host the, the tour. But in years past, so it's not a new idea. It's not my original thought for sure. But in years past, the people that kind of espoused that idea of, hey, quit trying to chase longer, bigger, farther, uh, you know, they were the kid in class with their hand up that everyone hoped the teacher didn't call on, including the teacher. But it's a concept and an idea that may be finally starting to have its day among serious golf circles. You know, we've, we've got a generation of golfers younger than me that have come up on the idea of Sweeten's Cove and a revival of golden age architecture and reverence for classic strategy. And these are people that are going to continue to infiltrate green committees and real estate development in all rungs of the golf industry. So maybe we're going to have a critical mass of golfers that accept their golf courses for what they are and value what they already have. And we'll see the game continue to grow in a way that isn't going to be ever more expensive for people to participate in, for operators to make the game available to their customers, and so on. To that end, I'd recommend you give a listen to uh, the most recent Good Good Golf podcast, where uh, here on the Talking Golf Network, of course, where Rod and Adrian discuss this very concept with Colin Chris, who recently published a wonderful article about it on the Fried Egg, uh, over on the, the Fried Egg Golf website. As always, uh, speaking of the Talking Golf Network shows, you can interact with this show on Twitter at BlindShotsPod or on Instagram over at BlindShotsPodcast. Uh, I'm the sole sponsor of this, in addition to writing, talking, and playing golf. I'm a licensed Kentucky realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I work in the residential and commercial spaces, so if there's something going on in the greater Lexington metro that you want to talk about, reach out to me. I'll be happy to help you get it sorted out. If you haven't already, head over to Apple Podcasts on iTunes and leave a rating and review for the show. 
Each time someone leaves a five-star review for this Grammy-quality podcast, Cleveland Golf adds another sharper groove to their wedges, making the game just a tad easier for all of us. I know I don't do a lot of these uh, monologue episodes, so I hope you enjoyed what you heard today. If you've made it this far, I just assumed you have. Uh, If you didn't like what you heard here, sorry, I can't do anything about it now. I will try to do better next time, I promise, and I'll put someone else's voice on here and get my thoughts out of the way. And I hope you will join me again next time here on the Blind Shots Podcast. But more importantly than that, I hope you're being safe and smart, keeping sane out there. It's 2021. The active golf season is upon us, and it's going to be a great year. I'm confident in that. So do your dynamic stretches, do decide to go for it, and take dead aim. knuckles and all. <laughs> <laughs>